Hello, welcome to Area of Expertise. I'm your host, Matilde Hunt, and today we're going to be talking about Shakespeare's Love's Labours Lost with Owen Thomas James. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, yes. Uh, hello, I'm Owen. I'm a Shakespeare Studies Master's student at King's College London. I've just completed my undergraduate uh, degree in English. And a fun fact about me, because obviously being a Shakespeare student, I've been involved in drama. The only role I've ever played in a Shakespeare play is a door with no lines. (laughs) So you don't actually have to love the language or understand it. You can just be a prop, if you like. Why did you decide to study Shakespeare? Well, it probably, yeah, it went back to um, English at school. We never really studied it until I got to A-level, where we did Macbeth. And I actually hated it. <laughs> and that was my first introduction <laughs> to Shakespeare. Yeah, I, I really hated Macbeth for a long time. Probably just because of the dry way it was taught. It was like, right, today we're going to read two scenes and then we'd go away and wouldn't come back to it until the next week. And so I, <laughs> that was my introduction to Shakespeare. And then I saw a production of The Comedy of Errors, which just completely changed my mind. So I think it's more a case of I love Shakespeare comedy rather than <laughs> Shakespeare overall. But I did then start to appreciate and enjoy other genres of Shakespeare. And I'm pleased to say now that I do like Macbeth. Not quite love, but no, we'll get there. No, yes. But, but that's how I got into it. From, from It started from a hatred and then obviously writing essays on him and actually thinking about what I was writing, then started to get more into the language and think, actually, this is quite good. And then watching some comedy plays, it was just funny. It was probably one of the first bits of theatre I actually ever saw, apart from pantomimes. But the, the sort of jokes and slapstick puns in pantomimes aren't too far from a Shakespearean punny comedy, so I feel like that's my that's my kind of brand. Yeah, I mean, I do classics, and even in ancient comedy, mm. you have stuff written in like 200 BC and it's still kind of funny like yeah. the plots are very contorted a bit like in Shakespeare but <laughs> that's not what you focus on the jokes are still exactly the little throwaway one-liners uh... yeah and the kind of slapstick physical humor as well yeah well that's the thing uh, reading Shakespeare you kind of miss out on the the physical comedy perhaps I mean stage directions are there to help but when you see a director's interpretation of it and how they try to make something funny that's to me one of the best ways to enjoy Shakespeare is someone else's adaptation of him. Do you think Shakespeare benefits from being modernised? This is this is a difficult one because I'm very pro the idea of making Shakespeare accessible for all. And I don't just mean like, let's change some of the words so they're a bit easier to follow. When we say modernise, it depends. Are you talking more about setting much ado about nothing as a student party in the 90s or just with easier to understand language? Well, a bit of both. Mm. I suppose for me, changing the setting but keeping the language is more of a kind of adaptation. So I suppose I mean more modernising the language to be more accessible or just changing a few bits that might not be funny anymore. In which case, yes, I am a big fan of that because uh, I've directed a couple of, of plays for the King Shakespeare Company and when doing that, I would obviously cut the script I don't want to be performing a, a three and a half hour play in some cases. So in that sense, I would probably change some of the words, even like small things down, to, uh, you know, from, from wench to, to woman or lady. I just, to me, it just, it makes, makes more sense because we just don't use those words anymore. So, so yeah, I, I would definitely be a pro modernizer, if you like, just to add a few things because some punning, some wordplay is lost and I don't want to lose what Shakespeare wrote to be funny just because, oh, we must be traditional. 
let's try and retain the the humour of a joke, even if we have to change it slightly. I'm sure he won't mind. Yeah. I hope. <laughs> Otherwise, I've butchered quite a lot of his plays. <laughs> uh, what do you think about the kind of modernisation of Shakespeare to avoid the ideas of the time? So, for example, in The Taming of the Shrew, mm. the whole idea is, you know, that there's this woman who's a real pain in the neck and she's kind <laughs> of tamed by this quite brutish man. Mm. And it's all about women being nags. Yes, that one is... You see it perform probably less because I guess that is somewhat problematic now. Although I saw quite recently in, in January, I think, the Royal Shakespeare Company performed a Taming of the Shrew at the Barbican, where they just flipped it round. Yeah, oh, you saw it as well? Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. So Catherine was played by the man. And that was a really good production, I thought. What did you think? Did you like it? Um, oh, no. <laughs> I, I did quite like it. Yeah, I think... Well, the shrew there, because it's a man, is made much more almost violent rather than stroppy. Like, he was this very angry character rather than just... You know, I when I read the play, I imagine the shrew as being more of a moaner, like a complaining <laughs> a lot, rather than being actually prone to these outbursts of rage. Definitely. I think with those kind of productions, you have to almost accept it for what they are. I probably... I don't know whether I'm being a bad Shakespeare study student here, but I'm always open to adaptations like that. But the only type of adaptation I just don't like is when it's everything's the same, but it's just they just change the setting for no real reason. Mm. And, and when when people do it, the main thing is that they're having fun doing it. That's fine, and there are good productions of Shakespeare where that's happened. But sometimes it's it's just not necessary. I suppose it, if you have a, a time setting, that's quite fun. But really, I, I I like modernizing the language, but not so much changing too much. Would you like to give us a summary of the play you've chosen to talk about today? Yes, the play I've chosen today, Love's Labour's Lost. I partly love it because it's so uncommon, I feel. It's definitely not as well known. It was actually banned in the Victorian era. I don't know for how long. Probably not very long. But because it was it was too fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like the Victorian era. Yeah, obviously not quite as it was stated. So the, the, the basic summary is we've got the king and three lords and their court of Navarre. And right at the start of the play, they say, we're going to dedicate our lives to study and academia. And in order to do that, we are going to forbid all women from our court. And we're only going to sleep one hour of the day. And we're not going to eat until night time. I mean, that's pretty standard exam season practice. Yeah, 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 exactly. They set a precedent there. But then literally, I think it's maybe two scenes after they do that right at the start... The princess of France and her three ladies-in-waiting turn up. And, of course, we then see the men's promise undone. Um, they all try to court their chosen lady. They all have a separate lady that they have their eye on in secret, whether that's sending favours, writing ridiculous love letters, until there's this hilarious scene where they're all caught reading their love letters aloud by the, each other. And then they have this big sort of pep talk, if you like, like, oh, what have we done? Let's go for it. Let's go and pursue these women that we love. Meanwhile, the ladies, they're not, they're not stupid. They are very wise to the uh, idiocy of these men. And they decide to make it as difficult as possible and play games with them quite deservedly. And the men decide to dress up as Russian Muscovites to try and win their favour in disguise. And the ladies play up to it. Uh, and it's just like a frolic um, satire on the English language, which I'm sure we'll get onto. But it's basically just a failed love story. And at the end, it ends on quite a sombre note. The princess of France, her messenger, 
comes on stage and lets her know that uh, unfortunately the king has died and the ladies return to France and there isn't a typical happy ending, which I kind of like. I would almost feel a little bit cheated if it's fairy tale ending. And obviously that's just the main plot. There, are, there is a side plot of, of more courting and a couple of characters that fall out with each other at the expense of the English language, which is a main reason why I love the play. <laughs> So is it a kind of ode to the English language in the way it's used? Or? Quite the opposite, actually. It's a, a scathing... Well, no, it's not scathing. I would say it's a, an intense preoccupation with language. And, and it's self-conscious in doing that. It plays and stretches the extent of language, the English language. One of the characters who's considered of a, a lower socioeconomic class even says it's a great feast of languages and we've stolen the scraps. And it's sort of this uh, verbal gluttony and then indigestion, I think, as well <laughs> on stage as there's just so much malapropism, people getting things wrong. There's an obsession with naming things and, and getting the names wrong. And the amount of paranomasia or pun in this play is is brilliant. Literally almost every sentence is a, is a pun or, or a play on words of some sort. To give you an example, there's this a bit at the start where Costard, who's a, a servant boy, has been flirting with a local country maid called Jack Quinetta. And another character, a Spaniard called Armado, who's in love with Jack Quinetta, tries to get Costard in trouble by making up that he's seen Costard flirting with Jack Quinetta. And this is after the men have forsworn all women from the court. So Armado thinks he's being clever, but Costard uses words against him, sort of says, where are my manners? I was caught in the manor house with Jack Quinetta. Such is the manner of a man to hearken after a woman. It's just like using manner three ways is just mm. one example of how they really stretch what words mean. And that's why I like it. It's just this verbal gluttony. And they even have a, a schoolmaster character named Holofernes, who is just this big joke. He just parodies himself, really. And that looks at the pronunciation of words and how Obviously, for someone learning English language, as we all do, or, or as a, a second language, probably the, sharing the despair that we've all felt, uh, some of the nonsensical <laughs> rules of the English. For example, silent letters. So Holofernes is sort of saying, oh, this man is an idiot. He pronounces daubt, doubt. It's D-O-B-T, not D-O-U-B-T. And he called the neighbor a neighbor and stuff like that. It's like saying as it's seen. It's just a very self-conscious mockery. How do you think it compares reading it to seeing it performed? Because obviously the plays and words that are kind of vocal like that mm. would be quite different. Yeah, well, I think it's it's interesting seeing it in print in a way. I think you get, almost get more out of it because there's so much going on in terms of slapstick comedy when it's performed. Because it's not just puns and wordplay. There's um, barbarism and barbarismus as well, where we've got this Spaniard character who, because he's got a thick accent, is mispronouncing words all the time so we get this sort of I'm a master of the arse instead of arts <laughs> that sort of thing so there's so there's all of that going on which you don't get reading it because it's not it, it's written properly it just says mispronounced in the stage direction so in a way I think when you read these puns in the wordplay it's almost like they make more sense it's easy to miss something because literally as I say every line is is carefully crafted to be a joke when you see it performed you, you could just miss something so I, I like reading it and making notes and just writing ha-ha on my copy of the script. <laughs> have you directed the play yourself? I have, yes. Um, as I said before, I had done some stuff with the King's Shakespeare Company. So when I was new to the company, I, I pitched. At this point, I hadn't even read the play. Uh, <laughs> I was looking for a play that was less common. 
because we'd just done the comedy of errors and they'd done Twelfth Night and The Winter's Tale before that. So I thought, okay, let's try and do one less common. And Love's Lobers Lost came up a couple of times when I was looking for sort of comedies. And I thought, well, I love puns. I love a joke. Let's, let's do this. Let's have a look. Let me read it. And when I directed it, I, I fell in love with it even more. There's just so much you can do with it. So I, I decided to have like musical elements. So there's this sort of play within a play type thing that goes on halfway through where the, uh, the riff-raff of the town, if you like, decide to put on a bit of royal entertainment, similar to Hamlet and similar to Midsummer Night's Dream. He definitely uses the same tropes, but um, they do it in Love's Lobes Lost. But I thought it'd be more fun to do it to music. So we have this deliberately awful musical going on, a, a bit like the Mechanicals play, but to music. And, it, and actually, I, I bought so many props for that play because, <laughs> again, there's so much you can do with, with puns visually as well. There's a quite a backlog of weird props that literally got one laugh but I thought were worth it <laughs> but yeah it was, it was a really fun play to, to direct the cast were really really great some some people got the, the short end of the stick I think my friend Kate who I met through the society she was playing Jack Quinetta the, the country girl and she, you know I sort of asked her can you sort of ham up the, the west country accent and can you play with the milk churn and just curl your hair while you're being horrendously courted like awful stuff but it was a lot of fun I think everyone enjoyed it I hope did the musical have a kind of inspiration or did you compose it um after your own mind so the first thing is so I wrote the music but I don't know how much you know about music production but I deliberately wrote the files as, as midi files so they were really really awful like basic solo instrument flute accompaniments and things like that I wanted it to be <laughs> deliberately awful and I wanted everyone to, to be out of tune, get their timings wrong. The only thing really that inspired that is kind of... Have you ever seen the play that goes wrong on the West End? Not on the West End. I've seen the show that goes wrong. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, their, their TV. So it's similar like that. Um, obviously, they don't have music in that. But that kind of style of like slapstick. Oh, God, everything's going wrong. Let's just try and carry on. That was the idea that I wanted to bring to the, the musical elements. You know, so we had props falling down, people forgetting their lines and other people having to prompt them during the music. That was the kind of inspiration, but it was all within the frame of this is meant to be deliberately bad. So hopefully the audience didn't think, oh my God, that's under us. <laughs> it's a disaster. Yeah. Reviews are just kind mm. of pitying. Yeah. Well, we did get a couple of reviews actually from the a couple of the, the student journals that came to watch, which <laughs> they, they were positive, but quite rightly, they, they merely just pointed out how weird it was. Owen's Bizarre World of Love's Labour's Lost was the headline, I think, which is quite right. It was just quite a weird thing. But within the, the context of a funny, farcical, punny play that had a bit of modernised language and some music. They're not wrong when they say it was weird. <laughs> well, there's so many productions of Shakespeare as well. It's quite nice to stand out. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought so. And on the, the note of adaptation, it was when I was sort of researching, if you like, on what I wanted to do with it. I'd saw, I saw a production that, I think it was The Globe, yeah, that they did, but they set it in, in wartime Britain. So they set it at World War One, and then they build it as a, a double bill with As You Like It, which was the sequel set in World War Two. So there's this ongoing debate with Love's Labour's Lost. Another bit of mystery that I love about it is obviously the Lost play, Love's Labour's One, mm. is the sequel. That is actually the resolution. That's why the play ends quite abruptly, uh, because that was meant to be the, the next one. And a lot of people say that As You Like It is the sequel. So 
the Globe, I think it was the Globe, it might have been RSC. Either way, whoever it was decided, yep, let's just say that's the sequel and let's run it as a back-to-back. So there's the same cast and everything just a couple of years on and they framed it World War One, World War Two, And that was good, actually. I did enjoy that. I was tempted to kind of copy it, but I thought, no, I can't. I can't. So I didn't really pick a setting as such. I just kept it ambiguous slash traditional. But the the musical style for the rest of the play, apart from the awful musical, was, was sort of jazz. So you could say, oh, this is like vaguely 1930s, I don't know. But there wasn't really a, a set time period. How did you do that with the costumes? <laughs> well... You know, National Theatre, they do, they do prop and costume hire yeah. for quite reasonable prices. I hadn't discovered that by this point, so I, <laughs> I took to eBay to buy <laughs> all of my costumes, which everybody hated me for because these things turned up. The ladies' dresses in particular, my God, they were awful. I feel so bad for the, <laughs> the, the, actor, the actors that, that played these roles. I just bought, to make it easier to differentiate between the, the girls, the ladies, just coloured dresses but they were just so badly cut. It was like just strips of cloth in yellow, orange, a horrible, hideous purple, and a green. <laughs> it was just the worst. I couldn't find any others, but they were like five pounds a dress. <laughs> so I, I just sort of thought, right, let's just make it easy to differentiate who these people are without getting too bogged down about, you know, collars and puffy shirts and everything. The lords, I just said, let's just shirt and trousers. I mean, the way you've described the dresses, it sounds a bit like Munchkin costumes. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was like sort of Teletubbies meets <laughs> God knows what. I don't know. So, so <laughs> I, I guess that also links into the review of it being bizarre because there wasn't a lot of coherence. It was more just meant to be a bit of fun that poked poked fun at, at puns. So, setting wise, I, I think I, I was I was young. I had a lot to learn, <laughs> but we all had fun, and I think that was reflected in the audience. They they did laugh which was nice. But yeah, I would never use eBay for, for buying costumes ever again. <laughs> so what advice would you give to your younger self if you were to go back in time pre-directing it? Uh, <laughs> I'd say probably read it again, because I'd only read it once and then watched one show of it. I could have made it even funnier. I probably would try and... If I'm, if I'm deciding, right, I'm not going to set it in World War One, or I'm not going to set it in New York during the Depression or, you know, some of these themes that are used quite commonly. If I'm going to keep it vague or traditional, let's let's get it coherent. I, I don't know. I wouldn't change too much. It was enjoyable. I, w- I was quite disorganised, though, to be fair. The actors probably hated working with me because I, I would be changing the script literally, like, days before the show. And I'm like, oh, this is funny. Because, obviously, I cut the play from, like, two and a half hours to one and a half hours. And then I was as I was rereading, I was like, oh, that, that's quite a funny pun. I don't know why I got that, got rid of that. Let me add that back in. So I was handing these actors scraps of paper with lines I'd handwritten on, like, oh, can you add this in here days before? Yeah, I wouldn't do that again. <laughs> so it should be more organised, but that's probably more my life in general rather than just directing. So you directed The Merry Wives of Windsor this year. How did you find that compared? I did. So I did that with my friend Dylan, who was in Love's Labours. That's how I met him. He was in that play with me as one of the lords, Longerville. And then we became friends through that. And we decided you know, after a year off, let's let's do another one. And we worked together on that one. So co-directing was something I'd not done before. Sort of sharing the reins, which actually was really, really nice. So, so that was a different experience in that sense, because when it even comes down to casting, it's, it's quite horrible to be sat in a room watching people perform in front of you. And you're like, they're really good. 
but where do they go in this cast? And being the sole person to be like, yes, yeah, sorry, I, I can't cast you. It's quite horrible. Um, I mean, I'm sure you know from doing theatre, either being on the receiving end of bad feedback or not the feedback you want or having to tell people, sorry, you can't, I can't cast you. It's horrible, isn't it? Yeah, especially when it's just because you don't have the right role for them. Yeah, literally, or you would if you were doing it like without cuts, but you know, you have to cut the play so you don't need particular role. So it was quite nice to ha- have a second opinion. We didn't always agree on that opinion and casting Merry Wives of Windsor took quite a while, various pub trips, before we did, made a decision, which was then done a bit drunk. So looking back, that probably wasn't the best idea. <laughs> but it was definitely more enjoyable to, to share the workload. And also, I feel like with Love's Labours, I got very carried away with some of the jokes. So working with Dylan, not that he's any more sensible than I am, but if I was going a little bit too far-fetched with some of the jokes he would sort of rein me in and say that's a bit too weird we're not adding that <laughs> even if I'd written it into the script uh, he would say no we're, we're taking that out so <laughs> so that was quite a good experience and that one prohibition was like our, our, our mark the, the whole point of Falstaff in Merry Wives is he's kind of a drunkard who wanted to make it more like shocking that he was drunk all the time because there was no alcohol and we were like where's he getting it from but that didn't really transpire and in the end we just kind of let the actors take on the parts themselves but that was something different you know I think I was maybe too controlling if you like with Love's Labours like I had very clear ideas on on how I wanted the characters to behave and I would sort of tell people this is how I want you to do it and I'd sort of in telling them how I wanted them to express the lines I would perhaps say them to myself which I think I think is really bad practice as a director (laughs) Um, should never say the line how you want someone to say it you should you should give them some pointers but then let them take on the role um so for merry wives we did that and although it, it didn't stick to our original idea i think it was it was really fun to have people experiment with with the character we had some interesting figures in that one um our full staff played by a chap called doug who i mean he was kind of fit for the role he, he said it was one of his favorite roles and he played it very well sort of excess drunkard gluttonous character which isn't exactly how we first imagined him we imagined him to be sort of this more like hideous womanizer, but but the way it transpired panned out really well with what he did with the character. And I think that's fun to let actors enjoy it more. So Murray Wives, different experience, but still a early comedy. That that's my favourite type of Shakespeare. You've said that Shakespeare often reuses the same tropes. Is there a mm. trope that you can't get enough of? <laughs> yeah, there probably is. As I say, I do love puns and wordplay and I feel like even in, in plays such as, as Romeo and Juliet, which tragedy traditionally, the the line um, about come to me tomorrow and you'll find me a grave man, that's one of my favourite, if not my favourite Shakespeare lines. You know, obviously grave, sincere, but also because he's going to be dead. That kind of clever, witty wordplay I, I can never get tired of. And, and Love's Labour's Lost, maybe there's too much in there of that play. Um, so in something like Romeo and Juliet, where it's seasoned a little bit more, is <laughs> is quite nice. What else do I do? I quite enjoy. I, I do quite like the uh, the classic twins story, mm. which <laughs> is present again in so many of his plays, comedy of errors. I think that was the original one to do it. I think that was earlier than Midsummer. But yes, the the, the twin story, comedy of errors, Midsummer, um, as you like it, Twelfth Night. He, he reuses it, but I feel like it's not always the same style of, of doing it. Comedy of errors is a good one actually because. It's one of the only plays, in my opinion, where its setting makes sense. You know, in, in Midsummer, for example, we travel to Athens for part of this story, uh, or the Forest of Arden. It doesn't really make sense to me, changing the location. 
you know, we've kind of got this Stratford-upon-Athens or Stratford-upon-Arden or whatever. But with Comedy of Errors, it's being set in Venice um, around, like, the merchant culture. The twins are like a tool to undo some of the rules of the society that the actual practice of merchant traders in Venice, the idea that a Syracusian can't be seen in Epidamnum or vice versa, otherwise they have to die immediately on arrival. We open the play with that dilemma, Aegean who's lost his his two sons and he's just condemned to death straight away at the, <laughs> the first scene of the play. And the, the twins, you know, through the mishaps of mistaking one another for one being a local, one being from, from Syracuse, we see those rules of society undone. So the whole twin story is used for a particular setting. So I like it when, when it makes sense, but there aren't many <laughs> where that happens. To, to get back to your original point, sorry, but twin stories I love. Uh, I can never get tired of that. Makes you think Shakespeare's time must have been full of quadruplets. <laughs> I guess people had more children. Yes, yeah. Well, I think it's it, it goes a little bit down to identity being linked to class. And, you know, if, you, if you're mistaken for the wrong person, that's seen as like social suicide. And then from then on, your reputation doesn't really recover. I, I, that might be one part of like the social anxieties towards twins and, and mistaken identity. I think that's one of the reasons. But otherwise, it's... It's just because it's funny, that big reveal at the end. Group audience class. Yeah, the kind of collective. <gasps> Which in, in, in Comedy of Errors, again, they, they actually have in the stage direction all gasp when the twins are revealed. I love it. So the, obviously the audience know, but it, it's more fun to, to play along. Do you find there's a kind of deeper meaning to Love's Labour's Lost? <laughs> in a way, I kind of like that there isn't. There certainly are themes to it, and you can study it, and, and I have studied it. And sometimes people kind of look for themes in things, don't they? You know, the meaning of love and, and uh, all this is light and day and foreshadowing. And there certainly are elements to that. Shakespeare, he, he knew what he was doing amongst all the witty wordplay and the, the sarcastic comments. There is certainly deeper meaning to be found in the play, and I think it comes down to our perception of living art. That's a, a line that they refer to a lot. I think at the start of the play, our court shall be a representation of, of living art or something. And they, they call back to that right at the end when the ladies have departed. That's sort of the idea that art and beauty can be found anywhere, not just in the sort of lavish, exaggerating descriptions of someone's beauty, as was very present at the time. If you've ever read a Shakespearean sonnet, you'll know <laughs> how excessive the descriptions can be. So... Yeah, it's that kind of idea that, that art and beauty is everywhere in the eye of the beholder because the subplot is, is quite happy. There is some happy ending to it, but the, the main plot is the fact that it doesn't end with a happy ending, but it is still a beautiful play. We've also got these beautiful constructs of language. I, I think there's quite a lot of deeper meaning of, of beauty and art and words, but what do I know? I just like it for the, the last. Do you have a favourite quote from the play? Hmm. Well, I, I do really like uh, Moth's line where he says they have been at a, a, a great feast of languages and some of the scraps. Um, sorry, that's Costard. Uh, and Moth's reply to that, Moth is uh, the assistant, if you like, of the Spaniard, who's also of a, uh, a lower socioeconomic background, trying to keep up with all this ridiculous nonsense wordplay that all the Spaniard and the schoolmaster are in constant battle with. And Moth, trying to be clever, uses a word... Well, he just creates a sentence of nonsense, basically. But I think it's—I think it might be the longest word entered into the dictionary for like two hundred years or something at the time. And it's something like "Thou hast more manners 
than the honorific habilitudinitatibus of a flap dragon. And I had to watch a, a pronunciation video on YouTube <laughs> on how to, how to pronounce that. I mean, we've talked about the kind of timelessness of Shakespeare, but where mm. do you think that actually stems from in the plays? As in, like, how, how can we keep performing them? Or why have they stood the test of time? Or... Why have they stood the test of time? Mm. Well, the first thing to note is that some plays have stood the test of time way better than others. Mm-hmm. And as we've mentioned with Love's Labour's Lost, perhaps less so, that one, because it is rarely done anymore. I, I think with bigger plays like, oh, I hate to use the, the classic example, but Romeo and Juliet... I don't know, it just has such a big reputation, doesn't it? Which is weird because it's it's not a love story, it is a tragedy and it ends horrifically badly for everyone involved. I don't, I don't really know where the, the timelessness stems from. We get plays like The Tempest, which was seen to be this great playwright Shakespeare's last play, which is false, by the way. Anyone that says that it was his last play and, and he cast himself as Prospero as like a farewell is not true. <laughs> but what was his last one? That we know of. I think it was The Two Noble Kinsmen, which he co-wrote with John Fletcher, which is another great play, by the way. It's a tragic comedy, which is actually a retelling of, of Chaucer's The Knight's Tale, which he also did with Midsummer Night's Dream, but he went back to it with Noble Kinsmen. Which is, that's a great play, and we think that's his last that we know of. But I'm fairly certain he would have co-written other things, even just a couple of pages or scenes with other playwrights, because when someone retires, they, they never really retire, do they? You know, you get artists, musical artists that, that retire or die, but they still release music. Drop it. <laughs> I think also the whole thing about him casting himself in symbolic <laughs> roles. I was listening to a podcast the other day yeah. where they said um, that Shakespeare had a son called Hamlet. Yes, which, yes. And we then think. he cast himself as Claudius in a performance of Hamlet, mm. and he burst into tears on stage. <laughs> and, you know, you've got to wonder who actually saw him shed tears here. <laughs> I've not I've not heard that one, that, that Shakespeare himself played Claudius. I, I quite like to believe it, you know. I, I don't know whether he would have done. He, he certainly dedicated that play to his, his son that died. I think the the notion of timelessness comes down to the fact that Geoffrey Chaucer is established as like the godfather of English poetry. The Canterbury Tales has stood the test of time. It's a medieval manuscript which has survived. But he was certainly established as the key literary English figure when Shakespeare was, was writing thanks to a circulation of Chaucer from someone called Spate who translated and made it accessible. So everyone was familiar with Chaucer, including Shakespeare, which is why so many of his plays use Chaucer for either plot or characters. So Chaucer was certainly established as a figure and I think Shakespeare, in reading Chaucer and in adapting Chaucer in his own plays, um, at the start of Kinsman actually, they even say in the prologue this is a tribute to our great Geoffrey Chaucer. We don't think we're ever going to live up to his great standard, but we're going to try anyway, so please can you applaud our efforts? That's the, the crux of their prologue. But I think quite cleverly in doing that, if, if Chaucer's established himself as the godfather of English poetry, I think Shakespeare establishes himself as the godfather of, of English drama, and obviously he did. But he kind of, you know, having a stake in the King's Men and performing in their company and writing for them, when the theatres kind of boomed and reopened after the plague and everyone was looking for entertainment, he was probably seen as the go-to guy and maybe that reputation was never lost. And perhaps that's why he's just always harking back to you know, I think it has to be also about the kind of archetypes he talks about. Because Romeo and Juliet, for example, there's beautiful language and of course there's very strong emotional appeal 
feel like every time I watch it, I tear up. <laughs> um, but yes. it's also just the kind of recognisability of the characters in it. The young lovers who don't really know each other but fall head over heels. Mm. And even the parents, like the strict father. In a way, the exploration of these characters, which often makes them overly specific so that you can't relate to them in Shakespeare, I find it always makes them more approachable from, I want to say, a kind of philosophic point of view. Okay. Yeah, I mean, certainly the way that these characters... Because like you say, they are archetypes. You know, we could look at the uh, the father figure in Hamlet. Obviously, Claudius isn't Hamlet's dad, but he sort of takes on that role as like the angry, shouty man that disapproves of everything. And the lovers of Hamlet and Ophelia that kind of fall in love, they don't really know each other. And obviously it ends very badly for Ophelia in that case. But we do feel this emotional reaction. And, and similarly, as, as you feel with Romeo and Juliet in Hamlet, I, I get quite emotional that some of the cries for help of Ophelia and obviously watching her descent into madness is quite sad. I've never really seen, there probably is, but I've never seen a version of of Hamlet that's played comedically. Mm. Um, Obviously it is a tragedy and and there are serious notes to it. But for me, yeah, there's certainly relatable elements um, that that Hamlet feels, you know, the need for revenge. I don't think anyone can begrudge him that, which is weird thinking about it. Yeah, go on Hamlet, kill Claudius. But you're sat there watching it unfold and, and you you want him to succeed in that. I suppose it might also be linked to the fact that they're made to be played by pretty much anyone. So mm. the fact that it's actually a drama means that these characters have to adapt to so many different people and be played in different ways. Yes, yeah, I agree. And I'm quite a big fan of the idea that anyone can do Shakespeare. You know, you don't have to, even if it comes down to an audition, you don't have to understand the meaning of every line. It's more just understanding the character. Uh, and from there, it will just kind of flow. And, and if that means you read a, a translation, whether that's No Fear Shakespeare on Sparknotes, we've all been there, or just very detailed footnotes in like an Arden edition or something, I think that anyone getting into it should should definitely not be afraid by the language because it is meant for everybody. It's not just particular theatre critics that, that will laugh at ancient jokes that don't make any sense because they feel like they should, which is why I like to modernise some of the jokes. I saw a production, the National Theatre Online, their version of Twelfth Night, and they didn't cut that, which is quite unusual. I think it was three hours and something. And obviously it's, it's a hilarious play and, and there are brilliant comedic elements to it, but some of the jokes are just outdated. But you kind of hear this guffaw in the audience almost of like, oh... And no one else reacts. So I, I like to make it more relatable, the fact that everyone can do it. I imagine it also comes from, you know, a theatre critic knowing the whole context and getting the joke. Because yes. he's almost expecting it. <laughs> you know, it might be genuine, but it's, it takes so much back work that yes, it's true. a bit of a slog to actually get it. That is true, yes. Maybe I, I, was, I was too harsh on theatre critics. I'm sure they, they aren't just laughing for the sake of it. But, but pra- yeah, if you've read it and then you're almost expecting it, it'd be easier to just make it a bit more approachable for everyone. I think there's also, there's not really a wrong way of reading it because there's so many interpretations. Like in that version of Twelfth Night, Malvolio, who at the end kind of goes off in a rage, mm. it's often played very comedically because he's not supposed to be a likeable character. Yes. And he's kind of ridiculous a lot of the time. And in the National Theatre version, it's a kind of very harrowing moment. It's very hard. You feel sorry for him, don't you? Yeah, really. Because his pride has really been wounded and he, he walks off shaking with fury. Everyone's silent. Definitely. I mean, there's an article by Emily Hobgood on that, on the Malvolio joke, and and whether it's taken too far, that there are different sides of the argument. And and in that one, I think it's quite 
unusual to have it played like that but I'm glad they did because it is almost like where do we draw the line between like scornful mockery and an actual just nastiness almost you know cruelty yeah it is it is cruelty on stage another reason why some of his plays can't really be performed anymore is because that line is often crossed you know all's well that ends well for example the the bed trick as it's called in that play where you sort of trick someone into sleeping with you by telling them it's someone else and doing it in the dark and that sort of thing. Perhaps it was funny in that day, you know, it's hilarious, like, haha, wrong person. But I think in, in certainly as context evolve, as society evolve, it's probably not that funny anymore. And I don't really see all, all's well done at all now because there's sort of a controversy around the bed trick. I mean, it's kind of going back to tropes. It's the way tropes themselves evolve because mm. in ancient greek myth for example you have that trope of tricking someone into sleeping with someone in the bed that they think is right someone else and it's actually um it results in incest there's more than one myth like that like one is the smyrna which is between a father and his daughter and then the other is something that begins with a pa Pedro, <laughs> maybe that's about this stepmother sleeping with her stepson and they're both horrified and it's, you know, they're tragic stories. So the fact that in Shakespeare's time, the same trope is used with a comedic effect is quite ironic. Yes, yeah, I hadn't thought about that, actually, because as we know, Shakespeare is a big plagiarizer. A lot of it isn't original. In fact, The Merry Wives of Windsor is the only play for which there's no known source. Love's Labours is also, uh, the main story isn't influenced by anything, but there are a couple of scenes which share similarities, I think, from John Lilly that came before Shakespeare. There's a crossover with Endymion. But yeah, Merry Wives of Windsor is, is the only one that is completely original, so there's always going to be a sense of tropes that are stolen if you like so I, I don't know perhaps even if some of these things were taken from greek mythology maybe they were even shocking then so speaking of modern shakespeare adaptations what do you think of film versions i suppose because i watched um she's the man the other day which is actually an adaptation of 12th night okay i've not seen that amanda Bynes about her taking her brother sebastian's place at this boarding school because her boyfriend who plays football told her that girls can't play football mm. so she pretends to be a man to defeat him okay yeah yeah and um sure. while she's there she falls in love with her roommate duke who thinks that she's a man okay and then this girl olivia falls in love with oh well so Amanda it, it sticks quite yes, strictly yes. to it okay um but it's all in the kind of american high school yeah. setting and it's a great time. I mean, the language isn't Shakespeare. No, no. But it still makes the plot really funny. Yeah, well, that that to me is great because it's not saying it's Shakespeare. It's its own film, which is influenced by, which I love, that kind of thing. I've never seen uh, Ten Things I Hate About You. Ten Things I Hate About You, yeah. which is actually The Taming of the Shrew. Yeah, I've never seen it, but I, I know that that is an adaptation or, or a version of the plot. So, so I love that, that kind of idea that, that we're seeing the genres crossover of theatre and film. I saw, this is quite shocking, for the first time in my 21 years, only a couple of weeks ago I watched The Lion King, which was very enjoyable, but no one had said anything to me while we were watching it, but I, I said after, is this just Hamlet? And then I looked on the Wikipedia and it, it did say it, and I was like, okay, that, that makes sense. <laughs> but I really enjoyed it, um, and I think there is definitely a lot of value and merit in in taking an idea and changing the format so much or just using it as an influence because you're not saying Disney's Hamlet, The Lion King. It's, it's Disney's The Lion King, influenced by Hamlet. And I love it, yeah. I, I'm a big, big fan of spreading the bard. All right, I think that's it, unless you've got anything you'd like to add. Well, 
I would urge you to to read Love's Labour's Lost, but if you want to watch it, the World War One RSC production or Globe, whichever one it is, is available on DVD or globe.tv. You can rent it for £4.99. They don't sponsor me, by the way. I will just say one final point. I have seen another production of it since, starring David Tennant as the sort of lead character, and that was fantastic. That was done in Stratford. Just hearing David Tennant in that role, full Scottish mode, um, it was very enjoyable. But that one was quite a weird setting. They they didn't change scene once. They just had... I didn't think it was real, but it could have been. They had a tree in the centre of the stage. All the action revolved around this tree. You know, you, you could throw your hat on a branch. You could sit under it on, like an, on a swing. You could climb it and reflect. Um, they had the balcony scene where all the men hide and reveal their love. They had everyone poking out different branches. Very good. Uh, I think we forgot it. Yeah, 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 literally. But thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful to talk. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been Area of Expertise. I've been your host, Matilda Hunt, speaking to Owen Thomas-James. Thank you. See you next time. Area of Expertise is a podcast hosted by Matilda Hunt with music by Joe Kimmich.